Hey friends, welcome to Boca, a podcast exploring the ever-blurring lines between the personal and business lives of professional photographers. This is your host, Nathan Holritz, and I'm happy that you can join me in connecting with photographers and entrepreneurs as we discuss photography, business, and that sometimes messy thing we call life. This podcast is brought to you by Photographer's Edit, custom image editing for the professional photographer. Visit photographersedit.com. Welcome back, Boca Podcast listeners. We are here with uh, an unusual situation. I don't know. I think we've maybe had one other guest, Sarah, that has been on the podcast more than two times. Uh, You are certainly in, in an honorable group. Thank you for coming back to hang out with us a third time, Sarah Wiley. No problem. Thanks for making me feel special. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we've we've covered a variety of topics. We talked about um, Facebook ads, for example. In fact, actually, you know what we should do is we'll link to the previous episodes. I think it was like 171 and 181, somewhere in that realm, last year. A couple of episodes we put out last year. We'll link to those episodes in the show notes. And here we are, not even a year later, but this is going to be upwards in like the, the tie 200s episode that we're putting out, talking about... We're just going to call it balling on a budget, but we're going to get into how to actually work with budget brides. And and of course, I don't in the least say that in, in a condescending way. There is a massive, massive market out there for brides who can only afford a certain amount, whether it's 1000 or 1500 or $2,000 or maybe even less in some cases for wedding photography. This is not a topic that's addressed enough. And so we're going to get into it and we'll do that here in just a little bit. But what is one of the biggest lessons since the last time that we put out an episode, I think back in October of 2018, what's one of the biggest lessons that you have learned as a business owner, even since that interview? One of the biggest things I've learned since then, I say this all the time. I'm sure people around me are annoyed of hearing it, but I always say happy clients equals happy life. And that's so important, especially nowadays with everyone tending to go towards certain trends or shoot in a specific way, specific editing styles. It's just important to know that as long as your clients are happy, your workload and your business should be pretty happy as long as people are referring you and they're happy with their images and all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, all the, the, in a way we could call them peripherals, I guess, those things that go along with running a photography business, they play a role. But at the end of the day, if your client's happy, if they've had a really positive experience, that's what matters most. And and especially amidst the you know, the thousands and thousands of wedding photographers that are coming into the market, it's a really crowded space and easy to take a decent picture, or even a good picture these days with the technology that we have. But it's not everyone that truly invests in making sure that a client is happy and prioritizing that. And so this is a simple yet extremely powerful point, and it really can't be emphasized enough. Is there something that you're doing these days in particular that enables you to make sure that your client is happy? Yeah, I mean, I try to really just focus on my client and their wants. So I Mm. think we talked a little bit about this on one of the episodes I did with you, but I still run with the same values. I mean, not every single client is going to want to do specific Pinterest style poses. So I really try to get an idea of what my client wants because they're the ones paying me. So I want to make sure that they're happy with their outfits, that they're happy with, or I should say that they're comfortable with the posing I'm giving them. And I just want to make sure that they're going to like the session and not force them to do something that they're not happy with. 
Well, and, and this conversation goes both ways, right? If you're marketing your brand effectively, if you're putting work out there that you want to photograph, then ideally you're drawing in clients that fit what you do. And then it ends up being a match. You're not forcing yourself to do something that you hate. But at the end of the day, it is so, so important to make sure that we're ultimately serving our client. We're taking care of our client. We're trying to make sure that they're happy. And we can't let ego get in the way of that process or we will hurt ourselves in the short and long run. So this is a, a great reminder. And I, even if you did bring it up before, it was 100% worth bringing it up again. I appreciate you sharing that with us. I don't know that we did talk about this question before. This is a relatively fresh one since our last interview, but talk to us about one of the most impactful business or self-help books that you've had the opportunity to to read or to listen to. So um, not necessarily a book, but I, since I drive so much and travel a lot, I listen to a ton of um, business podcasts. Okay. And lately, I listened to a ton of Jenna Kutcher just because she has a super good variety of information, whether you're doing photography or different entrepreneur work. And she just has a ton of great information out there that can be applied to everybody. And then I always listen to Dave Ramsey just because I'm a huge financial person. And I just really like listening to anything that helps me kind of make smarter moves yeah. long-term and down the road. So, well, yeah. Jenna's built quite, actually both Jenna and Dave have each on their own built quite the empires. So they speak from experience, right? But we'll link to both of those podcasts in the show notes. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned Dave and the significance of finances, because that's really what we're going to get into here in just a second. But let me jump to the next question, because we have a lot to cover on our main topic. We're going to get there pretty quickly today. What is one of the most unusual items in your camera bag? And we talked before about some of your gear, but I'm curious if there's something a bit unusual. It doesn't have to be a camera or a lens or flash, something unusual that helps you be a better photographer. So I definitely say something that most people wouldn't necessarily think of is a clipboard. And I take this to every single wedding, not necessarily family sessions or engagement sessions, but every single wedding that I go to, I bring a clipboard and in the clipboard, I have their contract. I have the timeline. I have any notes about the couple just because when the wedding day comes, a lot of people kind of get locked up and I don't want that to happen. And I just want to be able to move really efficiently and go through their timeline, make sure I'm staying on schedule. And it's just, it, it has been a game changer and just being prepared in general, as far as photo lists and timeline and, helping coordinate all of that has really helped me be a better photographer. Now, so it, it's important to have all that information readily available, but I think about a clipboard, at least a traditional clipboard being kind of big, is it, is it a full-size clipboard or something a little bit smaller? And is it, can you tuck it into your bag or do you stick it in your back pocket? Like, what does it look like? So I have two, I have a little clipboard and then I have a regular size one. Okay. I don't, I, it fluctuates depending on which one I bring, but um, even the regular size one I can fit in my camera bag. I have one of those camera bags that can act as a backpack, so I just nice. throw it on my back and have it on me all the time. That's cool. That's cool. Well, yeah. it, it does not hurt to be prepared. And I, I know that, I mean, we used to, when I was shooting weddings, we would go through this multi-page interview uh, of questions, whether in person or we did it remotely. And then I think what I ended up doing, at least toward the end of my wedding photography career, was to scan those pages and then I could pull it up in an app on my phone. But it's a little bit small too. If you're going clipboard size, it's probably a little bit easier to read that way, but it's something I've never heard before. Do you recommend any particular brand of clipboard? 
You know, I don't have a particular brand. I am a sucker for Target, so I, I'll just go to Target and anything <laughs> in their section. But what you said about phones, I'll do that too. I always take a picture of their timeline and I set it as my lock screen. So ah. I just like to be uber prepared yep. for whatever they could possibly throw at me. Interesting. Okay. Well, this is good to know. And maybe Haley can actually find a, a really cool looking clipboard from Target that we can link to in the show notes for those of you who yeah. want to just go online and, and grab one. But uh, I appreciate you sharing that. We are, believe it or not, I know for most of you listeners, you're used to like 20 minute intro by me rambling on talking about this thing and that thing. We're getting right to the meat of the conversation today, partially because we've had Sarah on, on in past episodes. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll make sure to link to Sarah's previous interviews on the Boca podcast in our show notes. If you just go to Boca, B-O-K-E-H podcast.com, and uh, those links will be in the show notes along with the other resources from resources from today's conversation. And Sarah, you... This was something actually that came up a little while back uh, in a photography Facebook group. I know that our regular listeners have probably heard me refer to the significance of serving the the budget market. It is a massive, massive one. I personally use the weddingreport.com as a source of statistics for the wedding industry. And if you look at their numbers, it shows something like 80% of weddings photographed in the U.S. are photographed for two grand or less. And that's a really massive number, especially when you can consider all the photographers talking about you know shooting three thousand, four thousand, five thousand, even seven or ten thousand dollar weddings. And so the question in my mind is, just as an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm like, okay, well, if everybody's going over here to this space, who's taking care of this budget bride? And it seems like there's a massive opportunity. There was a conversation around this topic in a popular photography Facebook group. And in that thread, you made the statement, if I can read it, you said, I charged $1,500 and under my first year and did fantastic financially. And it was my only full-time gig with no side jobs. And I think the thread, the conversation thread at that point was alluding to the fact that, or the idea that if you're shooting for that low, you couldn't make a living. And so I love that you jumped in and very in a very straightforward manner and said, hey, actually, no, I not only made it work, but I, I did quite well on it. And naturally, I wanted to have a conversation with you around this. So with everyone trying to raise their prices and shoot less, there's a massive hole in the market, as I mentioned. And I want to explore how you made this work for you. Just to give context to the conversation, though, first of all, what market are you photographing in currently? I, I have to say it's I'm glad you saw it like that because sometimes I get not into trouble, but I tend to stick <laughs> up for people that charge a little less and I tend to get a lot of pushback from that. Yeah. So I'm glad that someone else can see where I'm coming from because I'm like, there is a need for this. Why are you so mean to people that shoot under a specific amount? Yeah. But the market, I've always pretty consistently shot weddings primarily I mean, the first year I did photography, I definitely did a lot of family stuff. I do some event work here and there pretty rarely. But yeah, the, over the last year and a half, two years, I've really transitioned into just shooting weddings and I shoot return clients and I'll, I'll still shoot event work now and then, but it's my niche is definitely weddings. And you're photographing in Oregon, correct? Has that been the case your whole photography career? Yeah. You know, the weird thing about that, now that I think about it, is I figured it out last year. I did more weddings in Washington than I did in Oregon, which is kind of bizarre considering I live in Oregon. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this year I, I'm primarily in Oregon. I shoot a lot up in Washington. Usually if I have 50 weddings a year, I'll do at least 
20 to 30 in Washington. Wow. And there's, there's usually five or 10 kind of all over the place, like Idaho or California, just places surrounding Oregon. But you, you still have a home market, home base, if you will. And, you know, we talk a lot about brand positioning here on the podcast and setting yourself apart in the market. Price does play a role in that or it can play a role in that. So again, for further context to this conversation, uh, what town do you live in or city do you live in in Oregon and how big is that city? So I actually just got a house out in Dundee and the population is 3000, but wow. I am, yeah, I'm about 30 minutes South of Portland. And just to give people an idea, Portland has 650,000 people in it. So okay. I'm very close to a major city in the U S so that also there's a bigger market here. Yeah. Well, major city. I mean, if you compare it to something like Manhattan, for example, it's not quite as big. I live in Chattanooga and I think the, I mean, the, the city proper is something like 250,000 population, maybe closer to 300. The Chattanooga area is, is closer to five to 600,000, somewhere in that realm. Um, so Portland is, it's definitely a bigger market. Um, not mm-hmm. the biggest market, but I, the only reason I'm, I'm emphasizing these details is, again, to give context to the conversation when we're talking about price, because price can be relative or relevant depending on the market that you're in. And that is something that we as photographers have to be aware of. It's not just randomly sticking a, you know, our finger on some price that we, that we guessed at and then just starting with that. We have to understand what market we're in, what the market can support or not support and adjust our prices accordingly. So I think it's extremely relevant to the conversation. What would you say is the average package price of wedding photographers in your market currently? So I've searched a lot on this, and every place that I've looked has a little bit of different of an idea of the average. But I would probably say about 2500 because some places are on the lower end and they say two other places say three. So I, I'd say the average is probably 25. Okay. Now, did you, did you start at an, like what was your starting price for a wedding when you start first started photographing and and you've been in, I mean, I think we alluded to this earlier, but you've been in the Oregon market in that smaller area since the beginning, correct? How many years ago? Yep. So it's been about time flies, but it's been about four years now. Well, you, you say four years, but what's interesting about this is you're going to shoot, you know, 40 to 50 weddings, maybe even more this year. I'm not exactly sure of the number, but you've developed a, a business that has done quite well in a relatively short amount of time. So um, on the other side of the conversation, I mean, there are there are photographers who have been in business for a while and in some ways still kind of trying to figure things out. You've been able to dive right in. And I wonder if price has played a role in that. But how much did you shoot your first wedding for? And like you said, I definitely think price has played a huge role in that. I mean, I, I've always been very aware of my capabilities and very aware that I didn't want to um, offer people more than I could deliver. So I shot my very, very, very first wedding for 200 bucks. And everyone's different, but in my, in my personal situation, I had never shot a wedding before. I had never been a second shooter, even if I had... I still wasn't sure about the lighting scenarios. I wasn't sure of how the timeline was going to flow. It was just, it was a completely new thing for me. So I did it for 200 bucks and I, the bride, it was so funny. The bride and I talked, she ended up asking me a few times to shoot it. And I finally just gave in. I was like, okay, (laughs) I'll do it for 200 bucks, but I am not guaranteeing anything. And I really hope you like these photos. And I mean, 
it just went, it kind of just exploded from there. And I just felt so comfortable shooting. And it was a huge wedding. I mean, there were probably 150 people there and she trusted me with this. And I just felt super at home. And to your other point, when I shot my first wedding for 200 bucks, the reason I did it is because I was super new and I knew it. And I say that to people who are just starting out and they kind of roll their eyes. But to me, I don't feel like I am justified in charging so much when I'm when I don't have the confidence that I can deliver quality photos throughout every type of situation. And I mean, that obviously that changed pretty quickly, but I just try to be super upfront with the brides and being like, Hey, this is how many real weddings I've shot. If you want to see more of this, here's a full gallery. And yeah, so that's why I first started charging so little and I kind of just worked myself up from there. Well, yeah. I mean the the idea that any photographers would kind of put down other photographers who are starting at a lower price point because they are just getting started and they don't feel like they can effectively charge more. I mean, that that's, it is pretty standard practice. I started at $350 and then went up from there. And Mm -hmm. so I I don't think this is particularly unusual to start at a low price point. I personally charged about $350. It was was exactly $350 in my first wedding. And I I did lose money uh, because at the time I was shooting film. But the idea that we charge a lower price point based on our experience and what we feel like we can guarantee is extremely logical. So the the idea that somebody would critique that, kind of put a photographer down that is taking that approach, I I think is a little bit short-sighted. But um, obviously, you gradually raised your prices. So I'm curious what that process looked like. I mean, we alluded to a $1,500 price point earlier. How long did it take you to get from the $200 mark to $1,500? I like to look at um, my business as supply and demand. So I kept staying busier. So I went from like 200 to 500 bucks, And then I still booked a couple weddings. So I'd raise it to 900 bucks, And As I got more familiar and confident, I kind of kept raising my prices. And there was a good, there was a really good time for me when I did raise my prices to about $1,500, where I was still able to consistently book myself throughout the year. But I could also have, I could also have a few days off if I wanted to, which is important to me. So, but how long would you say it took to get from the 200 to 1500 roughly? From the 200 to 1500, it I got really lucky and worked very, very hard for it. So it probably only took me a couple months. Oh, wow. But, but that's, that's just because I was throwing myself out there. I literally threw myself into the wedding market head first. And yeah. I was like, Hey, I'm willing to shoot your wedding. Like I, and I made a very nice full gallery of what I had already shot. And I kept using that for the next time. And I, I do think a lot of it is luck. Like I worked with someone and then she referred me to someone and they referred me to someone and it just, I got pretty lucky, but I don't want to discredit myself. I mean, I did, I worked extremely hard. Like I spent day and night editing and trying to make my little whatever beginner website I had look super pretty. And I put like a timeline of like getting ready shots and then family portraits onto toasts. And I just made sure to really showcase everything. Mm -hmm. So I, I was able to jump up really, really quickly, but I still did a ton. I probably did. I want to say I did anywhere from like eight to 10 weddings within probably three or four months. And that's when I pretty consistently 
started charging around, I think I went to like 1200 and stayed there for about a month or two. And then I went up to 1500 and stayed there for about probably about a year. I stayed there. Wow. Okay. Yeah. How in that first year after you shot that first wedding, how many weddings did you shoot roughly total? Oh, with my, everybody thinks I'm crazy when I tell them this. My first year, I probably shot, I probably shot 45 weddings Wow! and it doesn't seem like a lot, but I mean, it was my very first year. Oh my word. And, no, that's, that's totally, I'm just going to cut you off yeah. right there. That, <laughs> that's a lot of weddings. People are happy to, to get five or 10 weddings when they're trying to yeah. build a business. 45 weddings is a lot. That's incredible. Thank you. Yeah. It, I, I definitely threw myself out there and I was rewarded with the work. I mean, I, I know a lot of people work very, very hard to get out there, but I kind of like we were talking about earlier, when I had that first client, I really made sure to cater to her. And I made sure I was like, Hey, did I do okay? What did I do wrong? What did I do? Right. Give me your feedback. And then I'd ask her to post a review and then it kept like a referral train and it just kept picking up and going and going. Okay, so that that actually is a great segue then to my question about how you marketed to this market segment. You've already alluded to referrals. Was there anything else in particular that put your business in front of uh, the so-called budget bride, this this particular segment of the market? My first year, I was learning all about advertising and boosting posts and ads and all of that good stuff. And I just pretty much played around with Facebook. I would play around with boosting posts and just kind of seeing where I could get my work in front of. But also a huge thing for me personally, this isn't going to work for every single person, but I really wanted to connect with my brand. So everything I posted on my photography page, I would share to my personal page. That Mm -hmm. way all of my friends could see it and then they could share it with their friends and so, yeah, that, that really worked for me. So just really keeping my stuff in front of my friends list was really beneficial because I don't know, I feel like friends are more apt to giving you a chance with budget weddings over completely new people that you haven't met before. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this can't be, this is maybe it goes without saying, maybe it's too obvious, but I'm not sure if it's actually in some ways capitalized on enough and Facebook's been around for a while, but the idea that we have easy access to a group of, you know, whatever, however many friends you have, 500,000, 2,000, 3,000. If you put your services out there and, you know, start, maybe you start by, especially if you're just getting started, you start by offering to photograph, you know, say, put a limit on it, three sessions, five sessions for free or at a lower price point. Um, Do the same kind of thing for weddings and begin to build up your portfolio Word will get around very quickly. It can get around very easily. Again, thanks to the technology that we have these days. And so leveraging that is a great idea. Boosting Facebook posts is interesting because I've actually heard that it's not something that that can effectively work. And maybe back when you were using that particular tool, it was more effective than it is now. Did you get very much positive response from those boosted Facebook posts, like where clients said, hey, I heard about you through such and such post? Yeah, I did. And that's another funny thing to me. I guess different things work for different people because boosting posts has been the one thing that I've consistently done throughout my three and a half to four years of photography that has really worked for me. And it, and a lot of people say that it affects your reach. And I, I've never experienced that. I've kind of helped a few people as far as their Facebook advertising goes. 
And they'll come to me and say they worked with someone who told them not to boost posts. And then I'll show them kind of a formula that works. And they've had good experience with it too. So I think it kind of just depends who you're marketing it to. And if you're getting in front of your correct audience, but I don't know, it could be different for everybody, but I've always had extremely good luck with boosting posts and just really dialing it down and getting it in front of who I want it to be in front of. Huh. This is an interesting thing though. So, okay. Did you ever run regular Facebook ads against face or boosted posts to see if you got different results? So to be entirely honest with you, my first two years, I only did boosted posts. I had no idea how to work the ad manager. I had no idea how to do any of that up until really the last six months. And I, I honestly still don't even do that because it, I I don't know if I just haven't really understood it correctly, but I'll use it here and there when I really want to kind of get in front of a mass amount of people. But I prefer boosting posts just because I post a lot. I'm sure you've seen, I post a ton of stuff and I post a lot of content. So I really want to make sure that that specific post is getting in front of people instead of driving traffic directly to my website. I think a lot of people want to direct traffic to their website. But for me personally, I just want to direct traffic to that one specific post to let them see what I'm saying. So then they can go from there or book if they want to or comment and ask for more information. Well, and the thing about boosting a particular post is you can, especially if you're running ads, and, and honestly, I can't speak from a lot of experience uh, boosting posts as much as running ads. But when you're when you're running an ad, for example, and you have a particular kind of content, then you can adjust your copy accordingly and target a particular client or set of clients. And that kind of specificity can make a big difference in the way that you do your advertising. Facebook posts, I, I, I can speak less to, but I, I've, it's still quite fascinating to me that you've had that kind of experience despite um, what we've, I think, even heard here on the podcast. So props to you for whatever you're doing. And uh, I'm sure you, maybe you'll be getting some DMs here shortly, people asking you how you go about that process. But you talked about referrals, social media, Facebook posts or boosting posts, any other sources of business during the, those first couple of years? I mean, honestly, that was really it. And like I said, Facebook was really huge for me. And I mean, I I joke around and call Facebook the OG, but <laughs> I still I still feel that way because yep. people really want to connect and they wanted they want to talk and they just wanna be able to see your stuff laid out. So I've really just stuck to Facebook. Um I mean, I've always used Instagram here and there, but I I had much more luck with Facebook and I haven't really dabbled with any of the sites where you pay to put your um, wedding business up on a front page. So I tried to keep my marketing very organic. I've been fortunate enough to not have to need to use those sites, those specific sites. But yeah, it's been mainly organic, mainly Facebook, um, tons and tons of referrals. It And it really just comes down to taking care of my clients because I want to take care of them so good that they want to refer me. That way I can have that organic reach. Yep. Well, you know, it's interesting you talk about the wedding sites. Um, I'm assuming you're referring to stuff like The Knot, for example. And I'm honestly a little bit surprised that those are still around. When you have a a platform like Facebook where people are spending or Instagram where people are spending most of their time. Yeah, sure. A bride's going to maybe go to some of these wedding websites and search and and pin and so forth. But 
it makes sense, especially if you have a limited budget for advertising, that you put most of your advertising money into the place where your brides are going to see it the most. And so taking advantage of or leveraging those platforms makes a lot of sense. Now, so so we're talking about Facebook, or I'm sorry, well, Facebook, yes, and uh, just organic Facebook, but then Facebook posts being boosted, uh, referrals. These are kind of three major sources for business. Have you ever done bridal shows at that price point, that $1,500 or so price point? You know, I never have dabbled in the bridal shows. I've I've heard a lot about them and they've sparked my interest a little bit, but I I haven't really ever had the desire to do them yet. Sure. I'm they seem really interesting to me, but I'm just not sure. It's kind of new territory, so I'm a creature of habit and I get really scared to kind of branch out and try something and invest my money somewhere, but they look really cool. I mean, if I could somehow set my stuff up at one of our local ones, I would definitely be down to try it. But I, I've never done one, and I don't, I don't really entirely understand them. I mean, <laughs> well, it's fair. I, I mean, I sound, it sounds so bad. I'm sorry. Not at all. No, but I mean, it, hey, if, go to like shop around, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but honestly, if if you can sit at home and click a few buttons and and get really probably way more exposure through Facebook or Instagram. I mean, why not? Right. I mean, if we are talking about managing our time effectively, that's so much of the focus here on the podcast, doing so effectively, doing so efficiently and ultimately getting the most uh, kind of bang for the buck, if you will, then it makes sense that, that you're taking advantage of platforms that enable you to just push a lot of, or encourage a lot of exposure to your brand without having to go stand on a floor somewhere and hand out some business cards. Um, exactly. I, back in the day, because I, w- I mean, I was shooting back in the day of yellow pages, even, um, you know, it was yellow pages and yeah, you did bridal shows and, and I had some good success. We had some good success with the bridal shows at a lower price point, but, um, Hey, we didn't have Facebook or Instagram at that point. So more power yeah, to you. You had to do the front work. <laughs> yeah. So I, if our listeners um, have gone to your website, and actually I should mention your website, it is Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Lynn, L-Y-N-N, Photography, PDX.com. And uh, on Instagram, it is also Sarah Lynn Photography, PDX. And we'll put these in the show notes. By the way, I have to say, Sarah, props to you for actually having your social media icons at the top of your homepage, not way, way, way down at the bottom where you have to like scroll and go looking for them, at least on the desktop side. Anyway, it's, it's quite obvious it's right there. And, you know, I, I, you alluded to photographers wanting clients or potential clients to come spend time on their website and I can, I can get the reasoning there. But again, in this day and age, it makes sense that you immediately link them to a place where we're going to spend more time anyway. Don't you think? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I've done, I did so much research. I spent a lot of time on other people's websites and searching for potential vendors of my own. And I just learned that I really like getting in and out, like getting in, seeing the prices. And then my goal as a photographer is I want to get people to my inbox and I want to get them to my email so I can start talking to them and sending them and making friendships with them and start getting them interested in booking with me. Well, it's it's front and center. You got Facebook, Instagram, and then your email icon right there at the top. Yeah. Please, listeners, take note of this. Uh, there are way too many photographers' websites that I've been to in the last couple of years in particular where you have to go searching for the Instagram or Facebook icon. And again, this is where so many of our clients or potential clients are spending time. It makes sense that you would link them there. 
they can follow you and then you're in front of them more often than you would be if you just kind of left that out. They have to go searching for it. So put it up there at the top, please. Uh, But what I was going to say is for those listening in, if they've been to your website, they may have noticed that your price point now starts at $3,000. So is that where you're at at this point? Do you have associates that also shoot at a lower price point still at that $1,500 range? What does that look like right now? Yeah. So I actually, we kind of, well, actually we did talk about this last time, the associate weddings. So I do still do associate weddings, but I actually just opened a completely new business for all of my, for the associates and just associate photographers. And the whole goal of that was to be affordable photographers. And I just opened that whole new business and it's, it's really good because I want I want brides to still have really good quality for affordable prices. Yeah. So that was that's been the whole goal of that that business and I kind of separated as brands just because I want to be able to have my own brand, but I really still love the management side and coordinating side of things. Yeah. So I figured I'm already not doing so much stuff. I might as well open an entirely new business. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm doing that now, but yeah, I, I still do have the associates that will work directly under my brand and the way I look at it, everybody's completely different. There's a lot of people that do associate photographers and they'll charge less. And when they're working for my specific brand, I tend to charge the same amount across the board just because I do put in a lot of time into training them and making sure that they're shooting in a way that I would want it shot. So I was doing right across the board. And then now that kind of, now that I separated it, I can kind of just focus on my own stuff. And then that whole other business aspect, I can just be affordable and get stuff out quick. And so it's nice to have the separation now. Well, <laughs> Not that that's what you asked, but well, no, but I, I think if, if you are going to create, especially if you're going to continue to photograph or provide photographic services to a budget bride, but you want to go ahead and move up in your price point, creating a separate brand, especially if you have associate photographers makes a lot of sense. And, um, I mean, this is a whole conversation again around the topic of positioning. I'm in the process right now of actually reading a book called positioning. We'll link to it in the show notes, uh, by Al Rise and Jack Trout. It's, it's quite fascinating. But creating some distinction in your brands is, is a great idea. But and, and by the way, for those of you listening in, we're going to get back into the nitty gritty of how Sarah made this you know this fifteen hundred dollar wedding business work on on for her budget because the the argument made a lot of time is that well if you're shooting a thousand dollar weddings, you know you have to shoot way too much, you're going to burn yourself out, you won't actually make any money in the end, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to talk about how she actually did that. But I just wanted to give, again, further context to the conversation. Is there a reason that you made the move from, say, that $1,500 wedding up to the starting price now of $3,000? Yes. And the reason that I did that is kind of like I mentioned earlier, I work in a very supply and demand type way. I'll work myself up. And if I'm not staying busy, I'll lower it. And I kind of adjust this accordingly and work with the ebbs and flows in the industry. And if I tend to be slower for a couple of months, I might lower it. And the nice thing about being my own business is I can do whatever I want and I can price myself however I want. And by raising my prices up that much, 
I still stay as busy as I want to, but it also gives me the flexibility to where I can work with someone's budget if I want to. Like nice. I can take a weekend off if I want to. And everyone's values are going to be completely different. But for me personally, I'm a busy bee. Like I need to stay busy and I want to keep working and making connections. And I want to get my name out there and put myself in front of bridesmaids and the bride's friends and family. And I want to just keep pushing myself out of this shell. And the thing with my business is I could charge more. I could be charging four, five, six grand, like we were talking about. And I could do three weddings a month and be fine. But for me, I'd rather just stay busy and lower my price point a little bit and shoot as much as I want to and still be actively getting tons of referrals because I'm still within that good price range where I'm not considered too expensive and I'm not considered necessarily um, super budget friendly anymore. And I say that in a really loving way because I am one person that definitely has um, the idea that every single person, no matter what your budget is, you still deserve quality photos. Even if you're paying $800, like you and I know that it's hard to make that. Like that's a lot of money. So for someone to invest that in someone, that doesn't mean you should be getting bad quality photos. Yeah. Well, and and again, the reality is that the majority vast, well, I say vast majority, certainly the majority over 50%, if I understand correctly of the U S population anyway, is only making somewhere between 30 and $40,000 a year. So the idea that they're going to go spend, you know, 5,000 or 7,000 or $10,000 on a wedding photographer, even maybe three or four is a stretch. And that has nothing to do at all with the significance of the art of photography or the significance of the longevity of wedding photography. It's just simply their budget. It's what they can afford or not afford. And that very real and honest conversation needs to be had way more rather than these kind of ego driven conversations about the significance of photography. We understand that. I mean, I was a wedding photographer for over 10 years, so I I get that. Uh, But I'll, I'll tell you when I got married in 2000, my parents had six, they, they paid our wedding photographer $600 and mm-hmm. that sounds ridiculous. I mean, I shot weddings for, you know, I shot, I don't know how many weddings for $10,000. $600 sounds crazy. But the reality was 600 even $600 was a lot of money for my parents who did not, still don't make very much money. And so that is a simple reality. And if that is the reality and that is the mark, that's the way the market is playing. We don't control the market. It just is. The smarter things it seems like to do as entrepreneurs, yes, we're photographers, but we're also entrepreneurs, is to look where there's opportunity. And I love that you've created a business model, even with a secondary brand now, that enables you to serve a a massive, massive market that is way, way underserved, that is usually looked at as like a stepping stone. And I think our listeners can take this as an example of an opportunity that they may be able to look for in their markets as well. But let's get back into the details here because I want to make this extremely practical and accessible ultimately for those listening in. They're saying, you know what? I'm just getting started and this makes sense. I want to go after this market. Or maybe I've been in it for a while. I'm not having a lot of success at the $3,000, $5,000 range. I want to drop it down and go after that, that 80 the 70 80% of the market. How do I do that and still make it work financially? Because that's a big question in the end. So I'm curious, let's just take a $1,500 wedding and will you break the numbers down for us? Explain what the costs associated with a $1,500 wedding were and then ultimately what kind of profit you were taking from that. Okay, so 
The loaded question. I I have a very weird way of looking at this entire question that you just asked. Okay. So when I first got my camera, yeah, I spent a thousand dollars on it. Okay. When I started, I said, okay, I'm probably going to lose money. I probably won't make money this year doing photography. I'm just going to have my camera, my set lens. I'm going to go for it. So I wanted to make a breakdown for you. So I kind of did the math on this. If you're doing $1,500 weddings, say you're doing six a month, because a lot of the times, if you do lower your price point to be more attractive, you will book more. So if you're doing, say you're doing six a month, because I'm taking into account, you probably won't book every single Sunday. You might have a weekday wedding here and there. So say you're doing six, that's $9,000 a month. And I also accounted for, say you don't book anything December and January. So you're doing that 10 months out of the year. You're doing $90,000. If you take 20%, set it aside for taxes, obviously, you're at 72000 And with the benefits of having a small business like this is that you shouldn't actually be paying that full entire 20% if you're claiming everything right. And that's just in my personal experience. Yeah. I mean, I write off everything I possibly can. I write off my gas and car and everything that pertains to my business. So after all said and done, say you do your 20% set aside, you're at 72000 And I also, you will like this, I also, because I know I would get pushback on this if I just said it, you would get your 72000 people would be up in arms saying, oh, well, what about all the time it takes to edit? Say you set aside $150 from every wedding for outsourcing. So you're not spending that time editing. So that would end up bringing your yearly total down to $64,800. Now, whatever you do with the rest, your insurance, I figure that'll probably take off another, what, 10, 15,000 with insurance, business expenses, all of that. So in the end, when I look at it, I'm left with about fifty to fifty-five thousand, and it's realistically probably more because that's just weddings. That's not including family sessions and extra prints and canvases and albums, and that's not including extra images. So, the the fact that people there's this stigma in the industry where you can't make money doing budget weddings, I just I I have to kind of laugh a little bit because when I do, when I calculate everything out and I even sat down and calculated everything out with my specific costs and it was, I was still left with a ton. And I mean, most people nowadays, that's still a good amount of money. Even, even if you have, I mean, like say you have two little kiddos to take care of. I mean, to me, that's still a good amount to where you can still have your fun, do your things, you can provide for your family. I know a lot of people try to be the sole providers and you can obviously fluctuate that. Like if you're doing $2,500 weddings here and there, I, at the end of the day, you can make a lot of money. And the math that I did is just off of weddings alone. So that's not including all the sessions and there's still a lot of potential. So I, I personally don't see how, how people kind of scoff their noses when people work under set budgets, because there is a lot of financial potential there. So it's such a loaded topic, but first of all, I, I appreciate you kind of breaking this down in the detail that you did. I have to at least ask though, the costs 
associated with each of those packages? Were those kind of shoot and burn? Um, and shoot and burn sounds negative, but like to shoot and with without any kind of products, so you're providing proofs to the clients via gallery or something like that? Or were there any products associated with a $1,500 package? Yeah, so with, I mean, with my $1,500 packages, I would just do an online gallery where they could download all of their images and then they, I would also attach a print shop so they could order prints. They could order all of that. And then when I'm doing regular sessions, I'll do it a little differently. So I'll have a session price, say it's, say it's $375. They can, I'll, it'll include 10 images, but then they can buy extras. And then they can have that print shop at their disposal so they can order prints whenever they want. So there's just tons of extra revenues. And like you said, that's a whole different, whole different ball game. But, um, yeah, with, with wedding packages, I mean, most people will see $1,500 as pretty fair as it is. So the fact that you're giving them access to all of their images really conveniently in an online gallery is, is going to be a huge bonus for them. And and as you pointed out too, that if let's say you end up with fifty five thousand, and and you mentioned the fact that you could make way more off of these additional products, so that's something to be noted. But mm-hmm. a fifty five thousand dollars salary in a year does put you above that that fifty percent threshold, uh, which is crazy to think about. You know, I mean, I, I guess in in an Instagram society where we see all these people making so much money and kind of living the high life, or at least making it look like they are, the idea of fifty five thousand dollars doesn't seem like a lot. But if you're actually managing your money well. Um, that, that can easily make ends meet for certainly for an individual. It can play a pretty significant role in making ends meet for, um, or at least toward a family. And it's not, it's not a salary to be scoffed at by any means. And, and, and and so what we're talking about here, I mean, I know we kind of jokingly said balling on a budget. Um, the, the idea here is not that we're becoming millionaires shooting budget weddings, but ultimately really to make the point, which is, first of all, again, there is a massive opportunity in the market to, serve the budget bride. And and really, I wish there was a better phrase there. Um, but a bride who can't afford to spend three, four, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 on a wedding, there is a massive opportunity there. If you are proactive and disciplined in the way that you manage your finances and you go about this creatively, you can actually do quite well shooting a $1,500 wedding on a regular basis and, and make a full-time living as a photographer. And, um, you know, I, I guess here that the question would be, how can our listeners, those who, again, may be curious to, to get into this market, to dip their hands into this hands into this market and begin to work with these brides in this market segment, how, what are some practical ideas that they should consider, um, aside from the, the budgeting aspect of it, the financial piece of it that they should consider as they go after this particular market segment? So I, I would definitely say that you're going to have to be prepared to kind of tune out what everybody says, whether it be clients saying, oh, hey, that's either a little bit too much for me. You can either work with their budget or you obviously don't have to, but also to be prepared for the pushback in the industry. Because I mean, we would be silly to say that we're not affected by huge groups of people. And when you see tons of people talking about prices in these groups, I mean, they do kind of look down on others that are charging less for weddings. So I think it's super important to just really tune that out because that will affect your confidence. And 
if you want to charge a specific amount or less or work with a budget, there is 100% nothing wrong with that. And that's, that's one thing I've really had to learn over the years is how to be confident in my pricing. And I think for a while, I didn't want to post my pricing on my website because I was nervous about other photographers seeing my prices and kind of giving me slack for that. And I had to really understand that, hey, I'm not in it for them. I want a client to go to my website and be ready to book me right away. And that's just one of the the massive things I would I would do is just really tune out what other people say because that can that can really affect you. And well, a lot of, a lot of the need to to kind of almost placate our fellow photographers who are critical of these lower price points um, have to do more with insecurities than anything else, right? If we're actually to look at the numbers and in a similar way to what we did today, I mean, I know we've spent a comparatively little time or contextually little bit of time, even just getting into the budget part of it. There's, there are a lot of moving pieces. Obviously for those of you who are getting started, you're going to want to make sure you've got an accountant there. Sarah referenced the, the significance of writing off as much as you possibly can. That'll play a massive role in this as well. But looking at the actual numbers, so the financial numbers, looking at the market data, and seeing the reality of the situation on a logical level, like we, we can all be, I, I'm an extremely, uh, or have been known to be an extremely emotional individual. Uh, and so I, ha- and I have to kind of keep that in check at times. There's nothing wrong though with being an emotional person. Feel, let things matter to you, whether it's your business, your personal life or otherwise. But there are times when logic can, can make your life way, way easier. It can certainly enable you to be a better photographer. And when I say logic here, again, I'm talking about looking at the actual data. If we're just online listening to any and everyone spout off their opinion without looking at real numbers, then there's a problem. You're, you're, you're letting the reality kind of get set aside for the sake of somebody's opinion and what insecurities you may have about your work or your ability as a business owner or otherwise, instead of looking at the actual data and taking advantage of an opportunity. And I can't stress this enough because again, there's a massive opportunity here if you play your cards right. So um, this is a good point. Tune out what others say. I mean, it's good to keep an open mind. Obviously, you always want to learn and you want to improve as an individual. But somebody speaking their mind without actually using data to back it up, that's a problem. You can ignore that stuff, move on and, and focus on what's at the reality at hand. And I think we're, we're making, uh, at least beginning to make a, a good argument for this. What, what's something else they should keep in mind? Um, another thing to keep in mind is that if you do go for those more attractive prices, you'll probably stay much busier. So that's something I would think would be important as just um, not necessarily expecting it because it's obviously dependent on the market you're in. But I would kind of expect to hustle a little bit more and stay busier because if you are going to be more budget friendly, you're going to be more attractive to a lot of people and they're going to want to hire you. Well, and you made an interesting point earlier, Sarah, which uh, is also very much related to something that we talk about here on the podcast quite a bit, which is understand really what you want out of life and then out of business and structure your business model accordingly. You understand for yourself that you like to be busy. You like to work a lot and that's fine. And and so you've been able to structure a business model that, that very much is in tune with who you are, what you like, what you enjoy, how you tend to want to run a business. And so the notion of, of shooting a lot of weddings in order to kind of meet your 
financial goals, photographing at this price point, it's something that you can do because you know what works for you. For some of you listening in, this business model may not work because you don't want to, or maybe even can't in some cases, shoot 50, 60, 70, 80 weddings or whatever it might be in a year. And that's okay too. Um, What we're trying to do here is lend perspective to the reality, which is number one, there's a massive opportunity. And number two, you can actually do it. Um, You can make ends meet photographing, not only make ends meet, but actually do quite well because you've, we barely even touched on this, Sarah, but you talked about associates. If you, if you are willing to explore the possibility, you, the listener are willing to explore the possibility of bringing on associate photographers. Now we're talking about a whole different ball game. You can shoot a hundred weddings a year, 200 weddings a year with a team. And, and then, and then you're doing way more than making ends meet. Uh, and again, there's a massive opportunity there, but yeah, expect to stay busy. Uh, I, I know that for me, when I first got started within the first year and a half, I shot, I didn't do near as well as you did, Sarah. I only shot about 15 weddings. I was still working another job, but the next full year I shot 30 and a lot nice. of what enabled that was that, that lower price point, certainly. And so this is something to keep in mind and make sure that that so-called busyness is going to, to fall in line with your what we talk about here in the podcast, the big picture view, your long-term goals uh, personally. And then, then of course, that the business model that you're building to serve this, this segment of the market is fitting as well. I know that you had a third one uh, that we talked about earlier, a third tip or an idea for our listeners to keep in mind. Will you share that with them? The other thing I wanted to remind people of is to remember that your time is still valuable. Like my I've done a lot of growing over the years. In my first year, I mean, I worked myself nearly to the ground. I didn't have any family time, and I was just obsessed with making money and shooting weddings. So I shot all the time. And I think it's important to still remember that your time is still valuable. So give yourself a healthy amount of personal time, whether it be – it looks different for everybody, but some people might want to do – 10 weddings in two months and then kind of relax for a month and then go back on for a couple months. So just remembering to still value your time because you can do, you can be a really good mix. You can value your time and be reasonable, but you can also still charge a good amount. I think there's a very good, healthy medium. You don't have to charge an amount to where people are a little bit turned off and you don't have to charge an amount where people are like, is she still new? <laughs> you can, you can kind of be in the middle and still allow yourself time off when you want it. And, or like we we're talking about, you can outsource when you want it, if you want more time or you can work harder, just kind of remember to put your time in where, where you want to and remember to give yourself uh, personal time still. Well, and you mentioned outsourcing, you know, there is something to be said for, especially if you're going to be shooting a high volume of weddings for spending in your case, you, you mentioned $150 for editing. So $1,500 wedding, that's 10% of the gross revenue from that particular wedding that you're allocating to editing. But the reality is by doing that, you're potentially saving eight, 10, 12, 16, 20 hours of post-production. If you talk to a lot of photographers, probably an average of 12 to 16 hours at least. And that means that you then have time to yourself, for your significant others, the family and friends in your lives, to, to spend time going out and getting more business, whatever that means for your business model. Uh, there's so much you can do with that time. So spending a, a percentage, a smaller percentage of that gross revenue from each wedding for that purpose makes sense. And it enables you to be able to shoot more, to have that busy shooting schedule 
and again, make this mo- this model work in the end. So I'm glad that you brought that up too. You know, the average person probably would, the average photographer would probably say $1,500 wedding. There's no way I'm paying for editing. But the reality is if you're going to shoot full-time in that market segment, you'd be kind of crazy not to outsource your editing so that you can actually have a life that goes beyond just shooting. And uh, so I'm really, really glad that you brought that up. These, these three tips, tune out what others say, number one, to expect to stay busy and of course, make a decision about the business model accordingly. And then once you do get started, remember that your time is valuable, structure your business accordingly, take advantage of some of these tips and and ideas and tricks that we talk about here in the podcast uh, to run an efficient business. And definitely, if at all possible, outsource your editing, because that's going to free up so much of your time, enable you not only to build your business, but be able to have a life beyond your business, which is so important for the sake of our, our mental sanity and quality of life. So um, this has been a loaded topic, Sarah, and I know we, in, in a way, we kind of just brushed over it despite how much time we spent talking about it. Uh, maybe we can get into it at another time. And and again, I have to stress that the title bawling on budget weddings is is meant, I mean, it's it's ultimately kind of ironic because, you know, in some cases, we're not talking about making millions of dollars a year shooting these types of weddings. But I, I have to stress again, number one, there's an incredible market opportunity. And number two, if you approach that opportunity intelligently, creatively, proactively, especially when it comes to the numbers, you can more than make it work. And in fact, you can actually do quite well, especially if you're willing to bring on a team of photographers. And Sarah, you've been a a wonderful example of this. And I really appreciate your willingness to be able to share numbers and to talk about this in detail. No problem. It was nice talking to you again. <laughs> I know. It's, it really is. a. Pri- I know I say this quite a bit, uh, but it really is a privilege to, to have you on and, and yet again and yet again to have conversation for the sake of our industry. Will you just share one more time with our listeners where they can find you online? So Facebook, it is facebook.com slash photography by Sarah Lynn. And then Instagram, which I've been using a little more lately, is um, Sarah Lynn Photography PDX. Perfect. And then the website is Sarah Lynn Photography PDX as well, or .com, of course. And we'll link to that in the show notes at Boca, B-O-K-E-H podcast.com. Thanks again, Sarah. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Boca podcast. Will you let us know what you thought by leaving a review of the podcast in the Apple podcast app? And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast and suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My email is Nathan at photographersedit.com. The Boca Podcast is brought to you by Photographers Edit, custom image editing for the professional photographer. Visit photographersedit.com. <laughs>